Last Saturday, I was traveling home from a speaking engagement in South Dakota, and I had 12 hours of travel that involved four airports, and uh, I was dreading the trip, and I decided that in order to make it through this trip, I needed to buy a book to read. Uh, I can't sleep on planes. I don't know if you can sleep on planes, but when you're my size, sleeping on planes is not something that happens easily. And so uh, I bought a book, and I went to the local bookstore in uh, Mitchell, South Dakota, and I like to read nonfiction uh, historical books. And so I went and grabbed a book called The Last Days of Night by Graham Moore, which actually is being turned into a movie this year, I learned after reading it. Uh, But to my disappointment, it was not a nonfiction book. Now, I thought it was a nonfiction book because it was in the nonfiction section. I'm a little bitter about it. Uh, But I thought that's a safe bet. If it's it's in the nonfiction section, this is probably a nonfiction book. But what it actually is, is it's called a historical novel. And there's a difference. A historical novel is a story that is based on historical facts, but there's a little bit of fiction in it. And this particular book weaves together the story uh, of a a cutthroat rivalry between, you'll recognize some of these names, Thomas Edison, George Westinghouse, and Nikola Tesla. And this took place in the late 1800s. And this story is about a battle for power. Now, power on two levels. On the first level, it's a battle for electricity. Um, You know, uh, Thomas Edison had discovered what's called DC, direct current. George Westinghouse discovered what's called AC, alternating current. And they both kind of argued that theirs was better than the other. And they were arguing for control of electricity because they knew that electricity was the future. But they also were arguing and suing each other over who actually invented the light bulb. Now, if you ask the average American who invented the light bulb, they're all going to say Thomas Edison. But George Westinghouse has a pretty good claim to actually have invented the form of the light bulb that we now use today. So it was kind of an interesting story, this battle of power. And Edison, for Thomas Edison, he loved power over the public. He loved the attention and the adoration of the public. But Westinghouse, what he loved was the power of having the best product, He didn't really care about what the public thought. He just wanted to know that his light bulb was superior to Edison's light bulb. And then Nikola Tesla, who's a very interesting character, for him, what he loved the most was the power of just the idea. He just loved an idea. He didn't care if he made money off of it. He didn't care if the public liked it. He was a true inventor who just loved ideas. Now, the truth is, is that much of human history can be described as a battle for power, right? I mean, don't we still see that today, whether it's through government, political forces, military, a battle for power. This morning, we are in week three of our series where we're going through the gospel of Mark. And this morning, we're going to look closely at a story that is really about power. And what we're going to notice is that there's a collision of power in this story. There's the power of nature, and there's the power of Jesus. And when it's all said and done, we get a glimpse at another power. And it's the power, it's the only power that can change the heart of every man, woman, and child. So let's look at this story together in Mark chapter four. I'm reading to you from the ESV beginning in verse 35. And it says this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, they took him in the boat, uh, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, that we're drowning, that we're about to die? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea or the waves, Peace, 
be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Short story, but three things that we need to notice this morning about the power of Jesus, the power of Christ. And the first one is this, his power is credible. It should be in your notes if you want to fill it in. His power is credible. Now, we read a story like this, and we have to ask ourselves, did this really happen? Like, is this a true uh, historical, factual story? Or is this some sort of like a metaphorical story where they're trying to show that Jesus has power over nature? Did this really happen? Is this credible? So many people, if you ask them about Jesus, they're okay with him actually being a historical person. You have to ignore a lot of facts to, to try and tell someone Jesus never existed. There's a lot of evidence that Jesus, the person, existed in history. And then many people that you talk to about Jesus, they'll say, he was a good teacher. I'm fine with his teachings. I think his ethic is good. And some would even say, I think he's the son of God who died to, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. But somehow, they still do not believe in stories like this. They do not believe in his miracles. Thomas Jefferson was famous for cutting and pasting a Bible together that left out all of Jesus' miracles because he just didn't believe it was possible. He was a bit of a naturalist despite being a theist. And this is where people draw the line. They say these type of stories are made up. They're fictional. But this story and the way this story is told says otherwise. And let me give you some reasons why we can believe that this story actually happened. In his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, biblical scholar Richard Bauckham claims that one of the marks of an eyewitness account, one of the characteristics of an eyewitness account is something called irrelevant details. Irrelevant details. Now, if you have children in your life and they come home from school and they start telling you stories about their days, then you're an expert in irrelevant details. You are, you are fluent in irrelevant details because they say all sorts of things and here I am just saying, just what's the, what's the point? What's the outcome? What happened? But they're telling me like what the room looked like and what color this person's skirt was and I'm thinking, that's not important. So this is what Balkum is saying is that whenever you see irrelevant details, it's an indicator of an eyewitness. And scholars who look at this passage that we're looking at this morning, they all say the same thing. They say, for a very short story, what's most interesting is the amount of irrelevant, unnecessary details. And maybe you missed them as we read. Here are some of them. The fact that it was evening when this happened. It's irrelevant. The fact that Jesus went into the boat, there was an interesting phrase, just as he was, which means he didn't change. He didn't change his clothes to go out into the boat. It's irrelevant to the story. That, the fact that there were other boats there, the fact that Jesus was asleep in the stern, the fact that his head was on a cushion. Now, those are actually irrelevant details. Vincent Taylor, who's a prominent 20th century biblical scholar, said that details like that are so unnecessary to the story that therefore the story has the mark of being a genuine account, genuine reminiscence. Now, maybe you're wondering, what makes those details unnecessary? Because I kind of like those details. Those kind of help me. Those don't seem unnecessary to me. Well, here's why those details are unnecessary. Scholars of ancient literature know that this is not the way that fiction was written back then. Let me read to you this quote from C.S. Lewis. It'll be on the screen. It's in your notes. And C.S. Lewis, talking about the gospel, says this. He says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. 
I know none of them are like this. Talking about the Gospels. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, which means eyewitness account, either somebody is saying what they actually saw, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful and a brainful. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, helps us. He breaks it down. Here's what he says. What Lewis meant was that ancient fiction is nothing like modern fiction. How many of you like reading fiction? You like reading novels, and these fiction novels are filled with what we would call irrelevant, unnecessary details. They help us envision things, but they don't advance the plot. And so uh, Lewis is saying here that this story contains details and dialogue, and it reads like an eyewitness account. The genre of fiction... Only This genre of fiction only developed within the last 300 years. In ancient times, romances, epics, or legends were high and remote. Details were spare and only included if they promoted character development or drove the plot. That is why if you're reading the Iliad, you don't see characters noticing the rain or falling asleep with a sigh. In modern novels, details are added to create the aura of realism, but that was never the case in ancient fiction. So if you or I were making up an exciting story about Jesus today, we would add those details. We would include remarks just to make the story seem real. But that kind of fictional writing was completely unknown in the first century. The only explanation for why an ancient writer would mention a cushion in a boat, 153 fishes, doodling in the dust, which are other stories about Jesus, is because the details had been retained in the eyewitnesses' memories. So why are these details here in this story? There's only one reason because this is how Peter remembered it happening. Peter was Mark's source, most likely. And so Peter and Mark are talking, and Peter's going, oh man, you gotta hear this story. One night, I think it was, was, yeah, it was just about evening, we were, we were getting ready to go. We we're like, come on, let's get, in the, let's get in the boat. Jesus just jumps in the boat, doesn't change his clothes, just jumps in the boat. And there's all these other boats around. And then, you know, we get out there. Jesus, we see him, he's asleep in the stern. His head's on this cushion, and we're thinking, why are you sleeping? We're dying here. So Peter is recounting his exact memory of this. So Lewis, C.S. Lewis, who I know C.S. Lewis now is known primarily for being a Christian apologist and the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. But one thing you need to remember about C.S. Lewis is that before he was converted to faith, he was a professor of philosophy and English literature at Oxford University. So he's not some Christian with this uh, uneducated bias trying to speak into this. This has been his, his course of education and study his whole life. And what he's saying is that the only way that this could be a fictional story, the only, re- the only way that this story is not true, the only way that Jesus' power in this story is not credible is if somehow relatively unlearned men invented a form of literature that previously had never existed and doesn't pop up again for another 1,700 years. It doesn't make any sense. The only sensible explanation is that this is a real story. This is an eyewitness account that the power of Jesus is credible. You can believe in it. Now, Jesus had a lot of early opponents. Didn't take long for people to try to uh, sort of debunk uh, and refute the story of Jesus. And they tried lots of ways of doing it. But one thing that Jesus' earliest denouncers never did, they never, ever tried to deny his miracles. And do you know why? Well, because Mark wrote this about 30 to 40 years after these things happened, these miracles were still common knowledge amongst the public of that day. In fact, his denouncers, they came up with other explanations as to how Jesus did his miracles. 
They said that Jesus learned magic when he was a child in Egypt. Remember, he went off to Egypt for a while as a child. They said he learned uh, black magic, and that's how he did these sort of things. But they didn't try to deny his miracles because too many people were standing around saying, I was there. I saw it. That was my aunt. That was my grandfather. If you want to make up a story as unusual and unforgettable as this one, you have to wait longer than 40 years to do so because the original eyewitnesses are still alive. So for example, if 30 or 40 years from now, when I'm 69 years old or 79 years old, and I want to claim that on Sunday morning, January 21st, 2018, a UFO landed in the parking lot and ET came waddling out to talk to us, there would be a major problem. And the major problem is, is that many of you would still be around here to say, nah, I was there. I would, I'm pretty sure I remember that. I mean, I've forgotten every sermon you preached, but I would remember, I would remember if a UFO landed and E.T.'s grandson came out into the church. You can't make it up. And other people would say, I wasn't there, but I know people who were there. They would have told me. This would be on Facebook, wouldn't it, pretty quickly? I might be able to make up a story 30 years from now that's less sensational, that's less miraculous, but not one as crazy as a guy standing up in a boat and telling the storm to stop, and it's stopping. And someone might be able to tell a story like that 400 years from now, and people would go, maybe. None of us were there. But 30 years later, it's way too early to pass off these things. You cannot create a legend in 30 or 40 years. It's not doable. And Mark's writings were not only completed about 30 to 40 years after Jesus walked the earth, but they were circulated. In fact, Matthew and Luke almost certainly had the gospel of Mark when they wrote theirs. And then keep in mind that one of the irrelevant details was that there were other boats nearby. So it wasn't just Jesus' disciples who saw this. There are other people who saw this too. Now, one final thought on the credibility of Jesus' power is this. If you're willing to believe in the existence of God and the possibility of the supernatural, then where exactly do you draw the line on what's possible and what's impossible? And why do you get to draw that line? Recently, I took my daughter to see uh, the new Star Wars movie, Star Wars The Last Jedi. And afterwards, we were talking about it. And uh, I'll be vague. I don't want to spoil it for you. But um, she said to me, there's one part in the movie I just don't think it was very real. She began to describe to me that there's this one character that she thinks should have died, never should have made it through. And she's like, it just doesn't seem very realistic. And I was sitting there thinking, that's your issue with this movie? Like, I mean, we're Star Wars. Like, you're okay with the Wookiee? Like the eight-foot Wookiee walking around and talking? You're okay with people having swords made out of light? And you're okay with people using telekinesis and mind control? But that's what bothers you the most? Sometimes I want to say to people who have an issue with the miracles, you're okay with God being the source of all life and the sustainer of all life? and the one who became a human to live amongst us, to be our perfect substitute and our sinless, perfect sacrifice. But you don't think Jesus could have stood up in a boat and told the wind to stop? That's your problem? So if we're going to make room for God, then stories like this, although we should, take our, we should do our due diligence to study them, we can't easily dismiss them. Does that make sense? Now, maybe you struggle with the God's power. Maybe you think, or maybe you have people in your life who think he was a good teacher or a moral man, but that his healings and miracles were legends. 
The truth is, is if we read the Gospels carefully, that's not an option that's available to us. C.S. Lewis said that if you really understand the Gospels, you have four options when it comes to Jesus. He's either a legend, he never existed, he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Those are the four options that we have. This story is a historical account. This really happened, and it's recorded in the Bible, and the Bible, as a piece of literature, especially the New Testament, is, un, is incomparable amongst all other historical documents with regards to its reliability and trustworthiness. There's nothing even close to it. His power is credible. Jesus' power is real. Now, why does this matter? It matters because if you're really gonna trust God in the storms of your life, then you have to believe in the reality and the reliability of his power. If you really think God is in your storms and able to help in your storms, you have to believe that this power that God has, it's not made up, it's not a fairy tale, it's not a piece of fiction, it's not an exaggeration, it's not a legend. This really happened. His power is credible. Second point this morning, not only is the power of Jesus credible, but the power of Jesus is incredible. His power is credible and his power is incredible. Now, the story takes place on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is not actually as big as you might think. It's called a sea, but it's more of a lake. The Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by high mountains. And there's a cleft in the southern range of the mountains where the wind would come through this cleft and storms would come up on the Sea of Galilee very quickly, very common. So this was not actually unusual for a storm to come to the Sea of Galilee so quickly. One of my friends, her name is Catherine. She's actually in Israel today. She's in Israel this week. And earlier this week on Facebook, I saw that she posted a picture of herself in front of the Sea of Galilee. So I messaged her and I said, I'm preaching about that sea this Sunday. Can you send me a picture? So here's one picture that she sent. This is from the top of a nearby mountain called Mount Arbel. And you can begin to see the Sea of Galilee there over to the right. You can see that there's, she's taking the picture, obviously, from the top of a mountain. Mount Hermon, which is also near the Sea of Galilee, is the biggest mountain. I think it's about 9,200 feet at the peak. If you go to the next picture, here she is actually in a boat taking a picture of the Sea of Galilee. So isn't that cool? Like, look at this and imagine, like, this is where this story happened. And we see the, we see the reaction of the men to the storm. The men are terrified. They're certain they're going to die. And this should cause us to take notice. And you know why? Because of who these men were and what their occupation was. Now, I remember when I first started learning how to drive about 22, 23 years ago. Uh, I, my whole life, I went to school at Faith Heritage School. Faith Heritage School is located in the valley of Syracuse, down on the south side, and we've lived up on the north side of the city. So uh, I remember learning to drive by driving from my house to school. But in order to get from my house to Faith Heritage, I had to merge onto 81 South right near the mall. You know, that place where you gotta go kind of get to the left to get onto 81 South so you can keep going south. And I remember the first couple of times I tried to do that, I mean, you're trying to remember, right? All the things like uh, look over your shoulder, use your turn signal, stay in your lane. I mean, it was terrifying, terrifying for me, terrifying for the other drivers on the highway, (laughs) terrifying for anybody who was in the car with me. I mean, it was a pretty scary, scary deal. But now, if I'm honest, when I get on 81 South there, I mean, I can be on a phone call, you know, hands-free, but I can, be on a, I, can be on a, I can be on a phone call. I can be adjusting the radio. I can be threatening my kids to be quiet in the back. I can be eating a five-course meal. And I can make the lane change with relative ease because uh, it's not scary anymore because I'm used to it. I'm accustomed to it. I've done it thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Now, these men in the boat, especially Peter and John and Andrew, 
They'd been on this lake many times. These are fishermen. They'd been in many storms. And so when these guys were scared, then you, it says something to us. It says something about that this was a big storm. So as we look at the incredible power that Jesus has in this story, let's first remember this was an incredible storm. This was not a normal storm. This was a big deal storm. And this reminds us that no matter what storm we find ourselves in this morning, Christ is able. You cannot wander or walk or run your way into a storm that Christ can't do something about, that Christ doesn't have a power to address. His power to deliver us, his power to save us, trumps anything we may face, and we can know that even in the midst of an incredible storm. Some of you maybe are in an incredible storm this morning. God is bringing you through an incredible storm. Jesus is in the midst of the storm, and he has power to save. So Jesus then wakes up, stands up, and speaks to the wind and to the waves. And he rebukes the wind. We don't know exactly what he says. Mark doesn't record it. And then he says to the waves, peace, be still. Now, other translations say it differently. But basically, I heard Tim Keller say that what he's saying to the waves here is, shut up and stay shut up. Stop what you're doing right now. It's a forceful command. It really is. But, but what really strikes me about the story is it's not like Jesus rolls up his sleeves. Like he gets up, he looks at the storm, he's like, oh boy, this is going to take a lot from me. Rolls up his sleeves, gets himself all worked up, gets himself all pumped so he can display his power. You know, this afternoon there's two NFL playoff games and the winners will go to the Super Bowl. And if you watch those teams before the game starts, what do they do? They get in circles. And they start, they look like they're angry at each other, but they're not. They, they get in circles and they start yelling at each other and they start smacking each other in the head and they start bumping into each other and guys start running into the middle, like almost uh, just to kind of like slam, jump in the air and slam into each other. What are they doing? They're getting themselves worked up. They're getting themselves pumped up so that they can display their power as a team. There's none of that here. Jesus doesn't have to work himself up. You know why? Because his power is incredible. When your power is incredible, you don't have to work yourself up to do it. He basically stands up, wipes his sleepies from his eyes, and he tells the wind and the waves, hey, knock it off. You're annoying me, and you're bothering my friends. Knock it off, calm down, and stay that way. Which, by the way, sounds like how a lot of conversations with my daughters. <laughs> knock it off, calm down, and stay that way. <laughs> In verse 39, Mark records the results, and he says that immediately, not over time, not over the course of the next few hours, but immediately, the wind died down, and everything was calm. And the Greek word for calm there means this, that the sea was smooth as glass, mega calm, super calm. Now, if only the wind had stopped and the waves had slowly receded, then everybody could have said, well, that was kind of odd timing. That was kind of a, a weird coincidence. It could have been explained away. But not only does the wind and rain stop, but suddenly the surface of the water is calm as if nothing had been happening moments later. We've never experienced anything like that, have we? You've never experienced anything like that. What is that like? To go from the scariest storm of your life to all of a sudden it's like just a normal, peaceful Sunday afternoon out on the water. You've all been to the beach before, right? And you've seen how if a boat goes alongside the shore about a half mile away, what happens? The waves come in and the waves pick up. It takes a while for the waves to come. Imagine these waves were large enough to swamp this boat and for cause these seasoned veteran fishermen to fear for their lives. And then Jesus speaks up and all of a sudden it's just like perfectly calm. This is incredible. You know what? There's an interesting question they ask. They say, who is this man? 
They thought they knew who they were following. And the truth is, is that if you're here this morning and you're just kind of checking it out, you might think you know who you're here to check out, but at some point in your life, you're going to see him do something and you're going to say, who is this God? Who is this man? Who is this then? That even the water and the... Now, why did that matter to them that the sea listened to him? Why was that such a game changer for them? Because everyone knew in those cultures that only gods controlled the sea. The sea was considered to be the most uncontrollable thing, the most feared thing, the most unknown thing in nature. Only a god could control the sea. In fact, there's a really famous story of an 11th century Danish king named Canute. And everybody told this guy, you're a king, you're a king, you're deity. And he didn't buy into it. And what he did is, surrounded by all his supporters, he walked down to the ocean shore, and he looked at the tide, and he said, stop. He said again, stop. And it didn't stop. And he turned to them, and he goes, see, I can't control the sea. I can't control the ocean. I'm not a god. And he saw through it. So when Jesus stands up, and the water, and the wind, and the waves, and the sea bow their knee to him, All of a sudden, the disciples, it's like the light bulb goes on over their heads. And they're like, whoa, we're not following a good teacher. We're not following a moral man. We're not following a good example. This guy's God. This is deity. What's interesting here is that when Jesus speaks, he doesn't call upon a higher power. He doesn't say, in God's name. He doesn't pray. He doesn't, he just speaks. He doesn't have to. You know why? Because he doesn't just have power. This is the whole point of the story. Jesus doesn't just have power. Jesus doesn't just have access to power. Jesus is power. Jesus is power. Uh, Don't come to God to get his power. Come to God to get him. And what you're going to find is that when you get God, when you get Jesus, you'll learn that Jesus is power and his power is incredible. So his power is credible. His power is incredible. And the last thing that we learned from this story this morning before we close is this. His power is unforgettable. Credible, incredible, and unforgettable. Now the disciples in this boat, they've already seen Jesus heal lepers. They've seen Jesus open the eyes of blind, and they've already seen him turn the water into wine. And someday they're going to see him raise Lazarus from the dead and, and do many other miraculous things. But I want you to notice that in no other account, in no other miracle, do they react the way they react here. Every other time there's a miracle, something wonderful happens, they're happy, they celebrate, they're pumped about it, but not here. What happens here is, it says right in the story, that they were very afraid because of the storm, but after they see Jesus' power, it says, then, this is the way it says in the ESV, they were filled with great fear. They were terrified. They were very afraid. Here's what I'm saying. Before, they were afraid of the power outside the boat. And after the miracle, they were afraid of the power inside the boat. They were like, they thought, this is scary out here. But then when Jesus did that, all of a sudden they were like, who am I standing next to? Who am I sitting in this boat with? Who have I been walking with? This is the unforgettable nature of his power. When you experience Jesus' power, it impacts you. It leaves a mark on you. An indelible mark is left on your heart and left on your life. And if Jesus hasn't impacted you in that way, then I just want to encourage you this morning to sort of reconsider who he is. Reconsider his power because you've not experienced his power. Once we experience the power of Jesus like the disciples do in the story, there's something now that we realize that deserves our awe and our attention more than all the external storms in our lives that cause us to cry out and doubt and fear. 
The disciples thought that the sea, representing the unknown and uncontrollable things in their lives, was in control. But now they realize, oh my goodness, Jesus is in control. He has power over every power. And let me remind you of something this morning. Here's what it means for us. It means this, that sometimes, you're not going to like this. I don't always like this, but it's true. Sometimes God's solution to our problems is more terrifying than our problems. Sometimes God's way through our issues is scarier than just staying in our issues. And the truth of the matter is, a lot of us get very comfortable in our issues. A lot of us find familiarity and identity in our struggle. And Jesus, if he's going to, by his power, bring you out of your struggles, bring you out of your habits, bring you out of your hangups, the way through and the way out is not going to be comforting, it's going to be terrifying. It's going to be scary because you're going to lose things along the way that you thought you needed to get through life. The process that God brings us through, the journey that he takes us through, is more scary than our actual problem appears to be. And the reason why is you can't control God. You can't control his power. You ever seen a rodeo cowboy hanging on to a bucking bronco for life? Sometimes that's what the Christian life is like. You're just hanging on. You can't control God's plans. You can't control his purposes. You can't control his power. And it can be terrifying, especially for those of us that like to be in control. And those of us that wish God was more formulaic and did things more on our timeline and more in our way. There's a really memorable scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, the first book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And these four children have come into this world called Narnia, and they're hearing stories about this king or this character named Aslan. And they're wondering, who is Aslan? And they ask these two characters, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and Mrs. Beaver says uh, to the girls, Susan and Lucy, she says, well, Aslan is a lion. He's a lion. He's a, he's a great lion. And Susan says, ooh, I, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? <laughs> of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's how it is with the power of Jesus. Safe? Who said anything about safe? It's not safe, but he's good. He's good. And we see it in his story because he's not just directing his power towards the storm, but he's directing his caring power towards them as he rescues them and saves them. Jesus rebukes the wind and the wave, and then he has one more rebuke in him. He rebukes the disciples. He's not sympathetic to the type of person who says this, because Jesus is with me, because I'm a Christian, because I've gone to church my whole life, because I tithe, because I sing out, because I have the spiritual gift, because uh, I have this sort of sacrifice that I've made, then I should not experience the storms of life. Elizabeth Elliot was in Scotland one time, and she saw uh, something interesting. She saw that shepherds have to, uh, once a year, they have to take all their sheep, and they have to throw them into a vat of incesticide. And they got to throw them in so that they will fully submerge. And if they don't, here's, here's the problem. There's a time every year where insects will come and bite the sheep, and they'll bite them in such a way that the sheep will bloat up and possibly die. So they're throwing the sheep into the incesticide for its good, knowing that if they don't, the sheep could die. They have to endure this moment of misery so that they don't die. Now imagine, if you can, what's going on in the mind of that sheep <laughs> as it's being picked up, swung back and forth, and then thrown through the air. Oh, fun game. <laughs> landing, landing in a vat of incesticide. You cannot explain it to the sheep. 
You just got to do it. And you do it out of care, and you do it out of love. Is it possible that the shepherd of our souls may bring us through things that seem uncaring to us just so he can actually take care of us? Just so he can prove his greater care for us? It's important to point this out before we finish this message because otherwise you might leave her thinking, well, yes, Jesus' power is credible. I believe in it. Yes, it's incredible. It's awesome. And now I will never be wronged. (laughs) And I will never suffer again. And if either of those happens, then I will prove the story wrong and I'll prove the preacher wrong. But Jesus promises to be with us in the storm, not to keep us from the storm. And if our premise is that God's caring power will never allow us to go through the storms of life, then all of our conclusions when we go through those storms will be wrong. Let me say that again. If your premise is that God's caring power will prevent you from going through storms, then when you go through the storms, all of your conclusions will be wrong. And here's what will happen. God's faithfulness and God's goodness will stand trial every time you have a bad day. God's faithfulness and goodness will stand on trial every time things don't go your way because your premise is wrong. God's power and promise is to be with us in the storm, not simply to take us out of every storm. So Jesus' power is credible, it's incredible, it's unforgettable, and the middle of the storm is when we most need to remember. Let me finish with this. There's an Old Testament story that's very similar to this story. It's the story of Jonah. Jonah is a very close parallel to this story. There's some similarities. Jonah and these fishermen, these sailors are on a boat, and Jesus and his disciples are on a boat. They both encounter an unusual storm. In both cases, the, pro- the protagonists of the story, Jonah and Jesus, are found what? Sleeping. They're both asleep. And in both times, they're asked to do something about the storm. In the story of Jonah, if you're not familiar with it, Jonah is a runaway prophet, and he goes up and he realizes this storm is because of me. And he says to the sailors, if you throw me in, if you destroy me, you'll be saved. The only way you can be saved is if I'm destroyed. And they throw Jonah in. And immediately, just like in this story in Mark 4, the wind stops, the wave stops, and the sailors are terrified, just like the disciples were. So you think, well, it's a pretty similar story, but they throw Jonah in. I mean, that's where these two stories disconnect, right? That's where these two stories have nothing to do with, nothing to do anything with, anything to do with each other. And you'd be wrong. In Matthew 12, 41, Jesus says, there's a, there's a greater Jonah coming. There's one who was greater than Jonah who's coming. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about himself. Now, in Mark 4, Jesus wasn't ready to die yet for his friends. So he wasn't thrown into the storm to save their lives. But a couple years later, Jesus is in the biggest storm of his life. It's not a literal storm. It's not rain and wind and waves. It's sin Satan, the enemy of our souls. And it's a storm that's so heavy that Jesus is in the garden and he's sweating drops of blood and he's pleading with God for mercy. And at that moment, he looks at his disciples and what are they doing? They're sleeping. And he could have said to them, just like they said to him in Mark 4, don't you care that I'm perishing? Don't you care that I'm dying, that I'm perishing for you. And then he walks to the cross where he shows his power through great weakness, a way the world never expected and the world doesn't understand. And so this morning, you can trust in Jesus' power and you can believe in his power. Why? Because he allowed soldiers, he allowed Pilate, he allowed Herod, he allowed mockers, he allowed sinners, he allowed humans to have power over him while he was perishing. And he laid down his power and he laid down his life for them, for you. 
and for me. And Jesus knew the only way that you can be saved from this storm of sin and Satan and hell and the enemy is if I'm thrown into the storm. And Jesus willingly allowed himself to be thrown into the storm for you and me, displaying not just his power over nature, but the power that changes the heart of every man, woman, and child. That we serve a God who's so powerful that he could do anything, but made himself so weak that he endured on a cross the punishment that we deserve for all of our lack of belief. Now, some of you are facing major storms in your life. We're gonna pray for you in just a moment. And you're wondering, is his power to save me real? Is his power enough? And will it make a difference in my life? And the answer to all three questions is yes. Yes. His power is credible. It's real. His power is incredible. It's enough for wherever you are. And his power is unforgettable. It will change your life. Let's bow our heads together.